Have you been thinking about other ways to use your nursing training to make a difference in people's lives? Have you always wanted to immerse yourself in a new culture, learn a language and work abroad? Ever thought about Peace Corps? The Peace Corps is recruiting experienced professionals like you for international volunteer opportunities. Volunteers live and work alongside communities while building relationships, exchanging knowledge, and helping transform lives. The Peace Corps Advancing Health Professionals Program sends Americans experienced in nursing, pharmacy, and other healthcare specialties to work with partners throughout Africa. You'll get to utilize your skills to support emerging healthcare professionals and strengthen healthcare systems. Are you looking for more? The Peace Corps is looking for you. You can learn more at www.peacecorps.gov forward slash AHP. I suction the patient and there's that weird stuff in there and it's definitely not tube feed, but I don't know what it is at this time. I adjust the sedation, you know, as much as I can. And I call the night doc, tell them my concerns, what I'm seeing. And again, they're just agitated. They need more sedation add midazolam or whatever it is, but, and no other orders received. So that was the start of my shift. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Rapid Response Run podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have a special guest, Nurse Mo from the Straight A Nursing Podcast, y'all. She's such a good educator, and I'm so excited to break down the pathophys of this case with her. So, Mo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Super happy to be here. <laughs> so before we dive into this case, can you just take a moment to share with my listeners who you are with regards to your nursing background, and just tell us a little bit about your podcast as well. Okay, sure. Yes. So I've been a nurse since 2011, and I started out in the ICU, which in hindsight, oh my God, what was I thinking? But <laughs> I did it, and I got, I got through that. And I did that for, oh, I don't know, seven-ish, eight years and then I loved teaching and loved having students and loved precepting new nurses and all of that. So I thought, well, shoot, I should get my master's in nursing education. So I did that. And instead of going to work at a school where I would teach maybe 40 people at a time, I thought, I really just want to teach the world. So <laughs> kind of got my podcast going around that time. And since have left the ICU, but work still in the inpatient setting in the recovery room, 
which if anyone listening is considering making the switch, I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's like nurse nirvana down there in the recovery room. You get just you get just enough critical care that you still feel connected, but you don't have to solve every single problem the patient has or has ever had or will ever have. So it's just kind of, I say that it's just my nurse nirvana. Absolutely love it. So that's where I am now. I run my podcast, my website. I teach nursing students. I do all these things. So that about covers it, I think. That's the awesome. short version. And your podcast is so good. Guys, if you are interested in learning anything, oh, thanks. she has so many episodes. She probably has an episode about the thing that you're curious about. So just, I probably so go do. go to her podcast platform, type it in. I'm sure you can find like literally every topic. It's such a good podcast. Very inspirational for me as a, a newer podcaster to hear all the content you have. Yeah, we're coming up on 300. That's awesome. Yeah, just keep going. Yeah, yeah, we're coming up on 300. That's amazing. So this patient, tell me about your patient. What did you get in report? And then like, what were your initial assessment findings? Okay, so getting report in the ICU, if you don't know, is kind of a thing, right? It takes at least 15 or 20 minutes to get through one patient with one report, especially if it's your very first time taking care of that patient. So brand new patient to me, getting rapport, and I'm just getting bombarded with so much information. And clearly the night nurse was super, super frustrated and been having a really hard time getting anyone to take her seriously with what was going on. So patient, I don't even, at this point, I don't even remember the key, like the initial reason that the individual was admitted. It could have been anything, right? I mean, it could have been anything. So, but they were agitated all night long, which is not uncommon, you know, in a sick patient who maybe has a little ICU delirium, who's on a ventilator, right? So agitated all night long, fighting the vent, RT having a really hard time ventilating because they're just, they're asynchronous with the ventilator all night, really fighting it. They had to keep adjusting vent settings, trying different modes, going up on the FiO2, up on the PEEP, changing things around, all kinds of stuff to no avail. Had to keep going up on the sedation, not really having a huge effect there. Patients, you know, tachycardic, trending down on the blood pressure. I get, you know, a heads up that there's something funky in the ET tube. They don't know what it is. And I'm thinking, well, it's tube feed because that's what it always is, right? When you have a patient on a ventilator with tube feeding and there's something extra in when you suction, it's almost always because they've aspirated tube feeding. They called the doc multiple times all night long. The on-call person, you know, who was covering for the night, who just kept saying that patient needs to just relax. They just need more sedation. They just, they're agitated and that's why they're fighting the vent and why they're tachycardic, which didn't explain the other things, but whatever. So nurse and RT both really, really, really frustrated. Somehow, at some point, somehow they got an order for an ABG and at least had just drawn that and run that. So I go in, I do my initial assessment of the patient. And everything they tell me is is exactly what I saw. Very agitated, fighting the ventilator on pretty fair amount of sedation. Like, you know, you kind of get a feel for what's a normal. <laughs> it was more than what I normally saw for a patient who was still waking up and fighting the ventilator, especially. Restrained because had been reaching for the tube all night, tachycardic, blood pressure, probably somewhere around the low 90s. And this was a larger individual who you know, looking back at their trend, you know, if I've got a little gam gam who's 
you know, 85 years old and they've got a blood pressure in the low 90s, I'm not probably thinking that's very abnormal for them. But when I've got an average to larger sized adult who had been in the 140s and now they're in the low 90s, that's pretty, pretty significant. I take a temp, definitely febrile. And I take a peek at the urine output, what's been in there since the nurse dumped it at 5 a.m. and what had been happening all night. And clearly the urine output was suboptimal. So labs come back, that ABG comes back. We're looking at metabolic acidosis. We look at the PF ratio, that is low. It's around 200 or, or below 200 a bit. Elevated lactate, blood sugar, in the like high 200s for someone who does not have diabetes and white blood cells just way up there in the like 20,000. So something's going on, right? Did not take a rocket scientist to say something is happening here and it's not, not good at all. So, you know, of course I suction the patient and there's that weird stuff in there and it's definitely not tube feed, but I don't know what it is at this time. I adjust the sedation, you know, as much as I can. And I call the night doc because the night doc was still on shift until I think like 7.30 or 8 a.m. There was a little bit of a overlap there. I tell them my concerns, what I'm seeing. And again, they're just agitated. They need more sedation, add midazolam or whatever it is, but, and no other orders received. So that was the start of my shift. <laughs> so I can tell you weren't happy with that solution, just absedation. How do you handle that? Like, how do you document when you're trying to advocate for the patient and you're getting nowhere? Like, what are some things that you would write or do or respond? How do you handle that? Yeah. So basically what I did was I wrote, it was probably one of my best nursing notes ever. I wish I had <laughs> saved it because at the time I was immensely proud of it. It was great. It was, you know, concise to the point, but it clearly outlined all the issues the patient was having. So I just charted, you know, here is my findings. So it was all very objective, right? Here's my findings, patient agitated, tachycardic, you know, with the actual heart rate of whatever. Blood pressure was this. POC or a bedside blood glucose showed a blood sugar of this. All the things, just detailed it out. Bam, 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 bam. So-and-so doc called, notified of all the above. And then, you know, no orders received or order from midazolam or whatever it was. But anyone looking at that note who saw that none of these other issues were addressed would have to say, holy cow, something is clearly missing here in the terms of what the physician is doing to help this patient. So when you're not getting anywhere, okay, first of all, document your fanny off, okay? Document your fanny off and then well, in my case, I think they read my note <laughs> because suddenly they showed up at the bedside. What do you know? <laughs> so I think that's what happened because something that wasn't a problem 10 minutes ago suddenly has somebody showing up. So the other thing you can do if you're not getting anywhere when you call is you can always call back. Like, I know it's hard a lot of times, especially for maybe a newer nurse who's not used to receiving pushback to push 
back themselves, but you gotta. If you want to sleep at night, you've got to do everything in your power to advocate for your patient. That is the only way I get any sleep at night, knowing I did everything that I could. So you can always, always call back. I don't care if they yell at me. I don't care if they hang up on me. I'll call you back. Like, this is my job. This is what I'm going to do. You have to take your personal feelings out of it. It's not about you. It's about the patient and maybe a little bit about the other person being a bit of a jerk. But anyway, you can always call back. And one thing to really think about is, did my S-bar really convey the seriousness? Because, you know, you can take some ownership. Maybe I did not convey accurately what's happening here. So if I don't get what I need, I might rethink, what did I say? Let me see if I can S-bar the the heck out of this and call back with even more compelling evidence. So that would be one thing to do. And if they yell at you and hang up on you, whatever, right? The next thing you can do is you can simply go up the chain of command. You're never alone as a nurse, which is one of the things that I love about it. It's total team sport. So the next thing you can do is you can call your charge nurse and say, Hey, Betty, I am not getting anywhere with Dr. So-and-so. I called. These are my concerns. Can you help me advocate for my patient? And a lot of times if Betty calls, then Betty has a lot more pull and might be able to get some action happening. Let's say Betty is, I wouldn't think this would happen, but maybe Betty isn't, isn't impressed or Betty's not available. You could pop your head into your unit director's office, like somebody, right? Is anybody available? You could call a rapid response nurse. You could even call the house supervisor. Like there's all these people up that chain of command that you can call if you're truly, truly not getting any help for a patient who clearly, clearly needs it. I know, you know, we talk about doctor shopping and how that's like a super tricky situation. It's kind of pretty frowned upon to just keep calling doctor to doctor to doctor to get what you want. What I would say to this, if, you know, in a situation like this, where it's change of shift, I knew that the day doc was going to be coming on. And I knew that that person would be gung ho to get in there and do things for the patient. So if it's change of shift, and you know that the service that you're working with is, is going to shift over to the call team in 10 minutes, You could call the call team in 10 minutes, which would, you know, you'd be talking to a different doctor. So it's kind of a way around that. But I would say if you're not getting what you want from the provider you're calling, you just you have to just call them back and make yourself a pain until they show up. And then that part of your S bar, that R is right. Your recommendation is or a request. I need you to come see this patient. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I would say to that. I just want to add to that, that I see this a lot where nurses say, well, I called the doctor and they said it's fine. But do you think it's fine? Like, do you actually feel like this is fine? Right. And did the doctor look at the patient? Because if you still have concern, your job isn't done by just saying, I called the doctor, check. Like, there's still more to do. Right. I remember one time I was walking by a room and I saw the heart rate was 180. I was like, oh my gosh, 180, good lord. So so I go to the nurse, like, hey, can I help you with your patient? I see their heart rate's 180. She's like, yeah, the doctor already knows. I'm like, okay, what are we doing about it? He said he doesn't want to give anything because it's going to drop the blood pressure. And I was like, um, well, if we don't do nothing, the blood blood pressure is going to (laughs) drop. No, it's not. (laughs) So I called the doctor back and I- Sorry, I just got fired up there. (laughs) (laughs) As you should. I called the doctor back, expressed my concern about not only the heart rate, but the fact that the blood pressure would continue to drop if we don't treat this. And it was this whole conversation, but but she was like, oh yeah, I called the doctor. He knows. I'm like, 
okay, you're not being done yet though. If, you, if this patient's really having a hard time with his heart rate, we need to we need to get something going with them. So yes, call the doctor, but don't stop. Yep. Yeah, that goes into my other biggest nursing pet peeve, not to get off on a tangent, but it's the he's been doing that mm-hmm. as an explanation for abnormal, abnormal findings. I'm like, okay, and... And he's been doing that. And what are we doing what about are you it? Do about it. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Very good. Okay. So you finally get a doctor there. Day shift comes on. What do they? Yes. Do? Okay. So finally get somebody in there who's writing a ton of orders. So they ordered a chest X-ray. So that got done, and they ordered a Nicom to look at if the patient needs fluids because their blood pressure had been dropping. They looked at that chest X-ray, which showed some whiteout. They had looked at the ABG. They saw, you know, those abnormal findings basically initiated the ARDS protocol with respiratory therapy. So now the respiratory therapist has some more leeway to make some ventilator adjustments, which was great and was helpful. And the NICOM assessment showed that the patient was fluid responsive and did need fluids. So gave some fluids, which helped the blood pressure, shocker, and they initiated the sepsis protocol. So finally, I feel like, okay, you know, oh, and ordered an insulin drip. Like a lot of things started happening, but finally I felt like, okay, we're getting things done for this patient. But you got real busy real fast once they started ordering ordering the stuff, Oh, yeah. So you had mentioned the non-invasive cardiac output monitoring. Can you just pause for a moment and talk to me what that is exactly? Okay, that is magic. (laughs) Oh, you want an actual answer. (laughs) It feels like magic because it's so, so cool. So the non-invasive cardiac output monitoring device that we use, NICOM or the Cheetah device or whatever you want to call it, is what we utilize to see if a patient would benefit from fluids. We used to just give everybody with low blood pressure fluids. Fluids for you, like Oprah, right? You get fluids and you get fluids and you get fluids. (laughs) But the evidence shows that that can be really harmful. Plus, we were just giving them a a metric butt ton of fluids, right? We'll just keep giving fluids until we get the desired response. Well, some patients don't necessarily need fluids. And that fluid just gets into the interstitial space. It causes all kinds of problems long term. It gets into the GI tract and lungs. And it's just, it's not good. So we use the NICOM and it's really cool if you haven't used it. It basically has these like patches, kind of like EKG patches. And they're super expensive, by the way. So if you don't just open them to open them. They're like $300 or something. They're crazy expensive. But these patches go on the patient and they are going to look at voltage signals as they change from one side of the chest to the other side of the chest. And through magic, this determines the patient's stroke volume and a bunch of complicated math, their cardiac output, their cardiac index, their stroke volume index, all of these things. So we hook the patient up, we get them on the the patches, we just lay them down, we try to lay them as flat as we can and get a nice baseline reading. And then we do a fluid challenge, which can be giving them a bit of a bolus, like 250 mil bolus really quickly. Or we can do the passive leg raise where we suddenly lift their legs up. And the idea there is that the circulation from the lower extremities is then pushed into like up towards the heart. And that's kind of like giving them a air quotes fluid bolus. So you do that. And if the stroke volume index does increase by more than 10%, it shows that that fluid helped the patient and they are considered fluid responsive. So then they order you know, an additional fluid bolus for the patient. 
But I think magic is a better answer. <laughs> gotcha. So basically, it's just more data to help guide therapy to know, does this patient need more volume or is it time to move on to vasopressors or inotropes or something else, right? This gives you more information right. besides just a blood pressure. Or an inotrope, yeah. To guide therapy. Exactly. Okay, so you do your sepsis bundle. You get fluids going for the patient. You're monitoring them more appropriately. And then what kind of happens with your patient? Okay, so the day doc, the day team is there and they're getting stuff done. So day doc shows up and I've shown them the stuff in the ET tube. That's a little questionable. And, you know, listening to the lungs, the whole thing, the questionable chest x-ray. And so they decide to do a bedside bronchoscopy, do a little lavage, see if they can clear some of that stuff out, get a sample and send it to the lab. We're looking at kind of the patient's history and the patient did have a history of a hernia. Okay. So they ordered an endoscopy. And so we do the bronch and then the endo team comes in and does an endoscopy. So and this is all in the same morning, by the way. Endo team comes in, does the, the scope. And it turns out the patient did not just have a hernia, but had a very large hiatal hernia. So basically stomach and stomach things were pushed way, way, way up much higher than they normally would be. And on top of that, somewhere in this whole process, probably through x-ray, we determined that there was a significant bowel obstruction. So the stuff that was in the bowel, because of the obstruction and the big hernia, was getting pushed upward. And what actually was in the ET tube was poop. Oh. That's the medical term, <laughs> poop in the ET tube. So what was supposed to be moving south moved up. Went north and then yeah. and then was aspirated. Ugh. Yeah. So anyway, that is what happened with that. Well, that will definitely take a toll on the lungs. Yeah, that'll take a toll on the lungs. And so, you know, that scene in A Christmas Story where Ralphie accidentally makes all of the the nuts from the tire when they're changing the tire, go flying. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, uh -huh. fudge. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought when I realized that this is what was going on. Because in my mind, that would be like the worst possible thing that you could ever have in your lungs. Turns out there's worse things that you can have in your lungs. But I fully anticipated this individual getting like massively, massively sicker. And, and as we'll talk about it more, they actually did quite well. But we, we did that. We did the bronch. We did the endoscopy. They got a GI surge consult because, you know, at some point we got to fix this or maybe even look at the bowel obstruction. Massive, massive bowel care ordered. And you know when the doc's ordering mag citrate, they're going for it. I mean, that stuff does not joke around. Mm -hmm. That's big guns. <laughs> that's that's it, man. That stuff. My, I, when I was a brand new nurse, I gave my patient mag citrate because that's what you do when the patient has mag citrate ordered. And then there was this, you know, massive explosion. And it was one of those cleanups that kind of took like the whole, took like six people just because a larger person on event, whatever. And my friend jokingly says, when you get an order for that, you act like you can't find it. <laughs> you just say <laughs> pharmacy never sent the mag citrate. I'm like, no. <laughs> so yeah, mag citrate ordered some metoclopramide for increasing that gastric motility, try to keep things moving south versus north. Got antibiotics for the, you know, presumed we're going to have E. coli in the lungs, right? So lots of antibiotics for that. Solumedrol for what's, you know, looking like ARDS. Tube feeding held, obviously. 
I believe there were vasopressors added, but they weren't necessarily needed for that long, which was really great. And even though I'd never took care of this patient again, I you know, you just kind of like, oh, what happened to so-and-so? I heard that, you know, extubated like less than a week later, got weaned off oxygen, got some kind of procedure for that hernia, went to the floor and went home. That is an amazing story. Amazing. <laughs> Not only your findings like, oh my gosh, there's poop in the lungs, but the fact that because we can get on it early and get interventions going and clear it out of the bronch and do all the treatment for sepsis that he actually recovered. That is that is so awesome. So yeah. there's so much to unpack yeah, about absolutely. this case. I would love to go back to your initial assessment. So, okay, so like strong work, recognizing mm-hmm. this is not good, this is not okay. Can you just like list out what are the things that pointed you towards thinking this is like pneumonia, sepsis, this is not just agitation, right? Right, yeah. So I would say looking at the ET tube was a big clue. I didn't know what it was, but it wasn't right. Like it clearly was wrong. So I knew something was up there. You know, the patient was tachycardic, sure. And patients are often tachycardic when they're agitated, but they're usually hypertensive, if anything, not hypotensive and tachycardic. So that was the clue, right? And then the fever, the low urine output, the high blood sugar, especially in someone who does not have diabetes, the elevated lactate from that ABG, the white count was up, the pH was low. Like it was just every clue you could possibly have said this patient is septic and it's looking like this is the underlying cause. Good. Okay. So now I want to talk about specifically why is aspiration pneumonia so bad? Like why is GI contents in the lungs so terrible. I mean, it sounds gross, but like specifically, what does it do to the lungs? Yeah. So earlier when I said there's worse things than poop in your lungs, if you get straight up gastric juices in your lungs, that's even worse because they're so acidic and they can just cause a lot of damage to that very, very delicate lung tissue. It goes in there, it causes acute lung injury. And as I was looking at like some mortality rates, the mortality rate can be as high as 70% when gastric contents are aspirated. So it's Mm -hmm. a big deal. And it can happen for so, 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 so many reasons. It's not just because the patient has, you know, a crazy hernia, but, you know, a patient with altered mental status is at risk. Any neurological deterioration, any neuromuscular disorder, any dysphagia, any GERD is a big one. Even intense vomiting, got a patient on BiPAP and they're vomiting. Okay, that's probably the worst combination of things you could ever have. During a seizure would be another opportunity to aspirate. A patient with an NG tube and enteral feeding, they're a high risk for aspiration. In surgery, you know, that's one of the reasons why we don't let people eat for that big period of time before surgery. There's just a lot of different clinical scenarios that would put a patient at risk. And it's kind of common. Like when I was working in the ICU, aspiration pneumonia was came up over and over and over again. It, it is a leading cause of pneumonia in the ICU, in the critical care environment. So when the substance, again, it's very acidic, it's into the lungs, it causes like an initial inflammatory response, like an initial pneumonitis. And this often, in many cases, gets the added bonus of a bacterial component because we got something in there. It's not supposed to be in there. So you got a bacterial pneumonia on top of this. 
you get into acute lung injury and then in many cases, ARDS. So I think about a third of cases of acute pneumonitis go on to become acute lung or ARDS. So as you know, super, super severe inflammatory response in the lungs. It's got a pretty significantly high mortality rate. And the recovery for these patients, when they do recover, is very, very, usually very, very prolonged. A lot of times you're looking at a while on the vent and then a real long while with the trach and then slowly weaning and then getting onto oxygen. And their lung function may never be 100% after that. So definitely the short version is don't aspirate. (laughs) Good life tips there. Yeah, that's my life tip for the day. (laughs) You mentioned a bronchoscopy. Can you just talk through like, what actually happens with the bronch? For those that have never seen one before, you know, what is the nurse's role? What's the goal of the procedure itself? Okay, so a bronch is a procedure which can be done to just take a look around. So it could be diagnostic. It can be done to get samples in that and be diagnostic in that way. And it can also be therapeutic. So basically what it involves is the physician inserts this really long scope down in through the airways and gets way down in there into the lungs. And they can look around and see what's going on, look at abnormal tissue that could be happening. You know, patients with cancer, they've got abnormalities. They can see if there's something blocking an airway. I want to say the strangest thing in a bronch was this little, and the doctor like took it out and showed it to us after. It was a tiny, honestly, it looked like a tiny little tree that the patient had aspirated some kind of seed or something. I don't even know what it was, but it honest to God looked like a tiny little tree anywhere. So they can find things in there and pull them out. They can get tissue samples, send those off for testing, and they can do lavage, bronchoalveolar lavage. And so what they do here is they instill sterile saline into the lungs, into those airways, and basically kind of wash them out. And they can also take those washings and send those washings off to the lab for testing, for diagnostics. And, you know, in the ICU, I would say eight times out of 10, the bronch is going to go in there and they're going to remove mucus plugs Mm -hmm. in patients who've got just mucus plugs clogging up their airways. In this case, it was something else, but a lot of times it's mucus plugs. So in that way, it can just be like super effective, right? The patient was decompensating, having a really hard time before they get bronched and now their airways are open and you can see a dramatic improvement, which is really great. So you asked about the role of the nurse during a bronx. So it's going to depend if you're in a critical care environment or working in, like, say, a med surge floor. If you're working on a med surge unit, your patient's going to go to a procedure area to get their bronx done. So your role is going to be giving report to the procedure nurse. In the ICU, bronx are done at the bedside and maybe even in the ED as well. I'm not really sure how that works, but they're done at the bedside. So in that case, your role is going to be probably giving some meds for sedation unless they're like on a drip, but you might be adjusting your your sedating medications for that. You're going to be monitoring their vital signs throughout the procedure and just kind of communicating with the physician because the physician's watching the monitor, their picture. They're not looking at the patient and you can just let them know, you know, Bob's starting to wake up a little bit and then they can call for more sedation or whatever. So you're just kind of 
doing all that and monitoring their vital signs and the patient's response throughout this procedure. The other key person in this role is the respiratory therapist. I believe that's probably how it works in most places. And the respiratory therapist is really kind of like the hands of the physician. While the physician's maneuvering the scope, the RT is instilling the saline or pulling the samples or handing you know them all these various things. So that's basically how, how a bronch works. You know, it's a pretty quick procedure usually. 10, 15 minutes at the most. And, you know, if people are sedated well, then they tolerate it just fine. Cool. And then, so finally, I want to discuss is you had said, just don't aspirate. But can we talk briefly about like, what are some things you can do as the nurse, not just in the ICU, but also on the med surge floor to prevent your patient from aspirating? Yeah. Yeah. So in this case, with this patient, you know, maybe preventing that bowel obstruction with some assertive bowel care would have been helpful. But, you know, maybe not. Maybe the issue was so far gone that it didn't matter. But just a reminder that bowel care is a very vital part of your nursing care. But a basic way to prevent aspiration is simply through positioning. So the studies show that that head of bed well, the studies are interesting because the studies show that aspiration is less at like 45 degrees, but shear injuries go up. So shear injuries go down at around 30 degrees. So it's just kind of like this happy medium where there's less risk for aspiration and less risk for shear injury. So that's why when you've got a patient on, say, a tube feeding, we're going to keep them at head of bed 30 degrees. We've got a patient on a ventilator. We're going to keep them at head of bed 30 degrees. So speaking of your vented patient, make sure you're doing exquisite oral care. You really want to keep their or the upper airway, you know, clear of secretions, keeping gunk off the top of that ET tube cuff, especially when you're going to go to extubate the patient, get that really clean. Because when the RT deflates that cuff, anything that was on there can just fall right down into the airway. So you're going to be really careful with your oral care with that. You're going to be very aware of your patients who are at risk for aspiration. So, you know, again, anyone with altered mental status, don't be giving them anything by mouth. Just wait until they're with it, okay? Um, if you've got a patient with dysphagia and they have not yet had their speech evaluation with the speech therapist, don't be giving them anything by mouth. Uh, wait until you get that clearance from the speech language therapist that says Bob needs to be on a pureed diet with thickened liquids and you need to crush his pills when you can crush them and put them in applesauce or whatever it is. So, Make sure dysphagia, stroke, altered mental status, don't give them anything until you are sure that it's appropriate for them. And then even when I have a patient with dysphagia and I know that they've been prescribed the proper textured diet, I'm not going to let them just eat unobserved, okay? That's going to have to be a situation where you are there or a properly trained tech is there actually either feeding or observing the patient the whole time that they are eating. So that's really key. I would say one thing I always ask patients, especially, you know, Gam Gam and Papa, is how well they take pills. Mm -hmm. So if they say, oh, honey, I take them one at a time, then you give them their pills one at a time. It's going to take a while. Yes, but you don't want the patient to aspirate their whatever mm -hmm. or their water with it or anything like that. So ask them how they take their pills. Maybe this is a situation where you need to crush them and put them into some applesauce. I've heard of a patient who had who had some swallowing difficulty, may or may not have already been seen by speech language therapy. I'm not sure, but the patient was prescribed oral potassium replacement. If 
I'm the nurse, and I've got a patient who's prescribed oral potassium replacement, and they don't swallow well. I'm calling to get that in liquid form because if you've never seen a potassium tablet, they're huge. They're like horse pills. They're giant. (laughs) And I have heard of a situation where a patient took one of those and basically choked on it and did not have a good outcome at all. So Mm. just, you know, asking patients how they do with that. Keep them very upright when eating. You know, you don't feed someone at 30 degrees head of bed, right? You're going to lift that weight up, have them sitting nice and tall while they're eating. If they're at a risk for aspiration, no distractions. This is not the time to chit chat about their grandson and how cute he is and and how she thinks that you two would make a great couple, right? They need to focus (laughs) on their eating and keep suction at the ready at all times. I would say keep the suction at the ready at all times on any patient ever because when you need suction, you needed it 10 seconds ago. So always make sure you have that. If there are decreased LOC, head a bed up, turn them on their side. Easy, right? If something comes up, it's going to come out their mouth, not down into their airway. And then I mentioned earlier that BiPAP and nausea, terrible combination. We're not going to put BiPAP on somebody who's going to be vomiting because you can imagine what happens to that. And that would be probably the worst possible thing that you could do. So BiPAP does not go on nauseous patients. And ideally, it's only on patients who can reach up and physically remove the mask if they need to. And then for your tube feeding patients, I forgot to mention, aside from keeping their head a bit up, you're also going to just pause it, turn it off when you're moving them around, especially if you're laying them flat for a bit, taking them for a procedure. And then when you get back, anytime I have moved a patient off the bed, like say we go to CT scan or something, you're double checking your NG2 placement. Best practice is to get another chest x-ray at that point. So lots of different things. And they're all like basic, basic nursing care for the most part for preventing aspiration. I would say that up, upright head of bed position is just, it's the easy thing and it's super, super effective. Good. I wanted to add too, we often think like they have, they aspirate and then they start to crash. But sometimes it's actually hours and hours and hours later that we start seeing all the symptoms of the lungs are now inflamed and angry and there's more fluid production. So sometimes they can aspirate at 7 a.m., but it's not until noon or 3 in the afternoon that you're like, oh, my gosh, they're not breathing very good. So it's not always a right away kind of thing. Yeah. I've had patients where I suspected aspiration based on their lung sounds and their x-ray. And the nurse is like, no, they haven't had anything to eat since 7. I'm like... Right. But sometimes it's the slow thing for it to develop. So just keep that in mind as well. But yeah, Mo, this is a great case for learning. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. (laughs) I hope that it helps people. (laughs) I was going to say it could be oral secretions. Yeah, you're right. So it's not always food. It could be a lot of other things that they aspirate, not just the food that they put in. I had a patient once aspirate a glove. I still don't know to this day how oh glove got into their airway. But when we went to go do the Brock, they couldn't even get the camera down because there's a big old glove like lodged in the airway. So yeah, who knows what you'll find down there when you go bronching your patient. But yeah, this was a really good case to learn from. Thank you. You might find a little tree. You might find a glove. <laughs> you never You're know. You're very welcome. Stay in the life <laughs> of being a nurse. <laughs> you don't know. But yeah, what a great case to learn from. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing all of your insights and sharing this case with us so we could learn from it, be prepared for handling a patient with aspiration, know that it is possible to aspirate poop and still survive as long as there's really good nursing care and interventions to like turn things around. But yeah, thank you so much, Mo, for being on my show today. This has been this has been awesome. Before I let you go, can you just say real briefly, yeah. if my listeners wanted to hear more of Mo, more educational goodness, where can they find you? 
they can go either to my website, straightanursingstudent.com. You can, that's the best place to go if you want to search for a specific topic because close to 300 episodes, it's kind of hard. You know, you have to do the scroll on your podcast player. So you can go to straightanursingstudent.com, pop whatever topic you're interested into the search bar. Most likely it's going to come up with something and it'll show you the episode number. And you can either listen from the website or just go to your favorite podcast player, search for straight A nursing, and you'll see it right there. Awesome. All right, Mo. Well, thank you again for talking to me today. This is such a good case. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Super fun. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you liked this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour Rapid Response and Rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you liked this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour Rapid Response and Rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. 
I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.